I'm a study. So, all right. So Ruth chapter one. Um, I'm assuming has anybody here never read the book of Ruth? I'm assuming all of us have gone through it before. Okay. All right. Excellent. So you have to go back and read it so you get the full story. Um, a lot of the things that I'll say will just be comments that come from I married, the. I married a woman like Ruth. Okay. In. Always in the field. Like a like a pagan yeah. foreigner, or this is gonna go great. Oh, yeah. All right. <laughs> so. so. So anyway, if I make some comments that you don't understand where it's coming from, go back and reread through Ruth, and you'll, you'll see where I'm getting it from. But we'll try to read as much of it as we can. So let's start in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. We'll read verses 1 through 5 just to lay the foundation for the book. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in, Judea, in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years. Both Malon and Chilion died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Alright, so we're not just looking at a biographical sketch to begin the book, but rather we're learning what God is saying about this family and this time in Israel. Um, does anybody remember how the book of Judges ended? Beth? Yes, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so we're reminded of that right when we jump into verse 1 of Ruth, right? In the days when the judges ruled. Right, so we're not in a great period in terms of faithfulness in Israel. And then we're also clued into an even more significant occurrence. There was a famine in the land. So we're getting a theological clue as to the character of the times. And they are not good. Why would God bring famine upon Israel? Judgment. Sin. Right? This is exactly what he promised in, uh, in Deuteronomy at the end of the book. Right? God promised blessings upon Israel for obedience. He promised curses upon them for disobedience. And Israel is currently in the midst of a time of cursing because of their disobedience. And not only Israel as a whole, but we narrow in on this one family. We have Elimelech and his wife Naomi. And their solution to the famine is found at the end of verse 2. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. They went into the country of Moab. Bethlehem, interestingly, means house of bread. Elimelech means my God is king. And he had no business going to Moab to find food. Does anybody remember where Moab came from? What, what family started Moab? Dave? Was that Lot's family? Yes. Okay. Lot and his eldest daughter... Uh, in, in a horrific moment of sin, after being rescued from Sodom and Gomorrah, right, she gets her father drunk and incestuously has a child. That child's name is Moab. 
In Numbers 22, we find that Balak, the king of Moab, hires Balaam to curse Israel. These are not friendly nations. Numbers 25, the daughters of Moab are encouraged by Balaam to go into Israel and to entice them with Baal worship. And in that instance, 24,000 Israelites are killed by God's judgment. Uh, Back in Judges 3, so not very long before Ruth, Eglon, the king of Moab, enslaves Israel for 18 years. Then he's famously killed, because he's a very large man, he's famously killed by the the left-handed knife of Ehud. And so the fact that they would go to Moab is a clue right off the bat as to where this family is, where Israel is, and the sin that they are all in. And it says they are not just sojourning there, right? they originally go there to sojourn, but then it says they remained there. And we find out at the end of this introduction, they are there for ten years. Right? And then we see continued judgment from God. Elimelech dies. The sons marry, again, in, pro- uh, in contradiction to the commandment of God to not intermarry among the nations that you are supposed to drive out and kill. And the two sons die. And so this family experiences very personally the judgment of God to the point where Naomi is the, the single Israelite, the one remnant of the family left with nothing except two daughters that she also has to now figure out how to take care of because all of her, her family, her male family has died. So she becomes a widow. Her two daughters are widows. And this is now a very difficult, hard situation. And she decides well, upon hearing that there is now grain back in Israel to go back. So let's jump to verse 6 and read 6 through 9. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, where she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. So she hears there's food in Bethlehem. She decides that it is an appropriate time, at least a good enough time, in terms of the circumstances, to go back to Israel. Um... And we, we see with a slight clue here that there may have started to come repentance in Israel um, as the, the famine has lifted. And Naomi decides it's time to go back. And so the question will be, moving forward, where is Naomi? Uh, she's really the, one of the main characters in this story. Um, and you watch her from the beginning to the end. Um, so the question will be, is she repentant? And we start to get a little more of her perspective as she heads back. Because she attempts to send her daughters back to their land. Is this a a good thing? A wise thing? Is it better for her daughters? Or should she encourage them to come with her? What do we think? Doesn't seem to be a wise thing. (laughs) To send them back? Okay. Okay. Is she testing them? Hmm. She will. Okay. Well, she also, they must be young, and also they would be, you know, they would another husband. Mm-hmm. So she, she doesn't know how she's going to provide for herself when she gets there. Yeah. Practically, it makes sense. 
I think she's embittered and mm -hmm. she doesn't want her daughter-in-laws to be affected by her bitterness. Mm -hmm. So stay away from me kind of attitude. Yeah. Yeah, she's definitely bitter. We'll see that at the end of chapter 1. It's interesting. She says, let's see here. I think it's in verse 8. Sorry, verse 9. She says to her daughters, The Lord grant that you may find rest. Mm -hmm. Is there rest outside of the Lord? No. no. But she's sending them away from the Lord to find rest in a husband. Right? Instead of realizing that the Lord is where her rest is, her sustenance, her provision, her, her contentment, and she needs to bring the nations to the Lord. Right? This was the call that Abraham received in the covenant with God, right? You will be a, a witness to the nations. This is what Israel was supposed to be doing for all of its history, and obviously they failed again and again and again. And Naomi is in a place of idol worship, of paganism, and instead of bringing, as the opportunity she has here, instead of bringing these two young ladies back with her to God, right? she urges them to go back to their gods. But she does realize that the Israelites are prohibited from marrying Moabites. And so she's yeah. thinking that the best thing for them is to stay where they can be married. Yeah. Um, and practically it makes sense. Right? But, but widowhood and barrenness with the Lord are far greater than a house full of children and marriage away from the Lord. And that is always going to be the case. Um but we see in her family, even in her, that there is not this committed faithfulness to the Lord. Um, that's what she's acting out of as she tries to send them back and just goes back to Israel. She's not even going back because the Lord is there. She's going back because there, it's home and there is now food back there. She doesn't see the hand of the Lord against her as a, a gracious, disciplining hand. And she, is, she is embittered, and we'll see this as we move to the end of chapter 1. Uh, so the first daughter-in-law, Orpah, makes a less strong desire, expresses a less strong desire to stay with Naomi. Um, she initially says she's going to go. Naomi continues to urge her to stay, and she eventually goes back. Ruth, however, makes a far stronger commitment, one that will not be broken. She makes the hard choice to go with Naomi, and it's a hard choice because Ruth is a Moabite, going back to the land of Israel. This is not her people. This is not uh, her gods. This is not a place where she would culturally be welcome. Um, we see her, her nervousness and her fright later on in the book when she's gleaning in the field of Boaz. Um, you can see that Boaz has to draw her near because she realizes she's on the outside. Even Naomi herself says that stay in that field because you might be assaulted in a different field. Um, so this is not an easy decision for Ruth. But somehow, some way, God has gripped Ruth. We see this uh, in verse 15 when what Ruth says to Naomi. And this strikes me as kind of a, a situation similar to Rahab. Um, you don't know, based, in, based on what happens in the book of Joshua, why Rahab believes. Why she trusts the Lord. Um, but God had gripped her. And so she was saved. And we see the similar thing happening with Ruth. God had gripped her heart. And so she says... <coughs> Actually, starting in verse 16, to her mother-in-law, Naomi, do not urge me to leave you or return from you, from following you. 
For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. You almost ought to expect some gratefulness from Naomi, some, some happiness, some joy perhaps. Um, she, she's silent when Ruth says this. Uh, so it's just an interesting reminder of what's going on with Naomi. But Ruth calls God her God. She uses the name of the Lord when she says, I will stay with you. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Right? Her heart has been changed and she is committed to go back to Israel because the Lord is there. Right? She will not be dissuaded from this. God is doing what Naomi had failed to do, what Elimelech had failed to do, right? in calling the nations to himself. Right? This is what God is doing in small part in Ruth as God is working in her heart. Ruth is a wonderful example throughout this book, but at the end of chapter 1, we see that Naomi is still hard. She goes back to her hometown, and all the women, this is the end of verse 19, all the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, but call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Old Testament Bible trivia, where does Mara come from? The bitterness, where does, where does the word come from? What story? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. No, Israelites come out of Egypt. They are three days out of the Red Sea. And they come to a place called Mara, and the water is bitter. And they cannot drink it, and they grumble against Moses and against God. Um, so Naomi makes a connection to that and says, This is her heart towards God. Right, this is her response to what God has done in her life. Her bitterness as a result of the sin and the judgment that God brought upon her and her family. Right, she is still in a place where she is straying from the Lord in her heart. She, she's blaming God. And so she's back in the land, even wanting to be called somebody who is bitter. So now we have two poor widows in the land of Israel, and there's a lot that needs to be done in order for them to survive. Um, they don't have anybody that would traditionally in that society provide for them. And so they need to do what the Old Testament gave as a way of provision for those that were poor and those that were widows. And it's the, um, the method of gleaning. So going into a field and picking the leftovers from the harvest. And so that's where we start when we are in chapter 2. And chapter 2 changes the story, or there's a huge change in the story in chapter 2 because we meet somebody else and it is a completely different person right off the bat. That's so chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man. And that is totally different than what we read in chapter 1 about Elimelech and his family. We have come to see a worthy man of the clan of, the clan of Elimelech whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. 
Ruth doesn't know Boaz. She's just she's going out to gather food. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. We'll see this also when we get to the book of Esther. The, the book of Esther is, is unique because it doesn't mention the name of God. But there's little things that happen that the, the author writes in that are subtle and almost humorous in the way they're pointing to God without mentioning his name. Um, so in the middle of the book, there's a verse that says, that night the king couldn't sleep. Right? And it's this, this beautiful little comment, and the entire book hinges on that phrase in the middle. And this is a similar one here in verse 3. She happens to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Naomi didn't send her there. Ruth doesn't know Boaz. Even in the original, this, this, this happening speaks of an unforeseen meeting and an accident, something by chance. Um, but it really reminds us of what C.S. Lewis says in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is on the move. Right? God is, is working. God is doing something. And he is sovereignly behind all of this because he is accomplishing his purposes. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Mm-hmm. And it's a glorious thing. Especially when you realize that God was right to bring judgment on Naomi and her family. Right? And Israel during this time. Like there's no nothing in Israel that makes them deserve this, right? Or in this family, or in Ruth. Right? She was a pagan, worshiping other gods. And God is working. It's a beautiful thing. Verse 4, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. And so this is our first impression of Boaz, and it is a glorious impression of a man who loves the Lord, uh, a man who has gone through the famine of the past year, but has stayed in Jerusalem or stayed in Bethlehem. Right? He has stayed with the Lord's people, and he has stayed faithful to the Lord. Right? He is known as a worthy man. He greets his reapers saying, The Lord be with you. Right? And they respond in kind. Right? This is somebody who is very different than what we just finished chapter 1 with. Mara, the one who is bitter against the Lord after great hardship. So he knows the goodness of God. He's continuing to trust in God. And this woman, this Moabite, who is going to be very recognizable because she is a very different person than a, an Israelite, right? she is gleaning in his field. It's hard work. It's hot work. It's going to be dangerous, especially for Ruth. But as we work through chapter 2, we see Boaz take notice of Ruth. And then there's just this incredible care and concern and provision that comes from Boaz to Ruth. Um, he's heard about Ruth. He's heard about Naomi. And he takes care of her on this, this first day that they meet. Where he finds out that this is Ruth. This reapers tell him. So somehow there was knowledge of her or maybe a conversation with her. And they've allowed her to glean. Now Boaz steps in and he tells her in verse verse 8 of chapter 2 to stay here. Glean in this field. Don't go to other fields. He's going to watch over her and protect her and provide for her. And then he tells his reapers to pull out extra to give it to her. Knowing that these two widows need help. And so he is going to actively provide for her. He provides for her during lunch. When they sit down, he calls her close. 
Or she wouldn't have naturally come close, but he calls her close, this foreigner. And then he gives her extra and so there is left over. And she leaves that day from the mealtime, from the gleaning, with around 30 pounds of barley. If you measure out what she leaves with here, we're in chapter 2. got to find where this is, is mentioned. Yeah, verse 17. She had about an ephah of barley. That comes right out to about 29 pounds of barley for a day of gleaning. Um, so this wasn't just bringing a, a small basket of, of kernels home. This was a significant gleaning that they could have lived on for a decent period of time before they had to go out and get more. Um, so this is incredible provision from Boaz to Ruth. And so let's go to the end of chapter 2 because Naomi re-enters the scene. Chapter 2, verse 19. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forgotten the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. We start to see Naomi worship a little bit, right? And to recognize God's hand. We start to see some of that bitterness crack. Because she is recognizing that God's love, God's covenant faithfulness is starting to shine through. Well, realistically, it's always been there, right? She's starting to see it shine through. And it's a beautiful thing. And so she's starting to soften a little bit in her bitterness. But we do still have an issue. Um, They are still two widows. There's no one to carry on the family line. There's no one that the property would go to in the immediate family. And so the ultimate need for Ruth and Naomi is for for Ruth to be married so that this can, so that the family line can continue. And Naomi notes that Boaz is one of the redeemers. One of the the people that was set up by law um, by God to continue a line of a family if there were no sons to carry that line on. So that's what brings us into chapter 3. Interestingly, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 9, Naomi sort of gives a sort of a prayer, more of a, a well whoosh to Ruth and Orpah. She says, The Lord grant that you may find rest each of you in the house of her husband. And we often find that God doesn't answer our prayers in the way we think that he should or the way we think that it makes the most sense, but God in his perfect sovereignty answers prayer in the way that is most glorifying to him and actually best for us. Right? And so, even if Naomi, in her, her just sorrow and her bitterness in chapter 1 was not fully meaning this, right? God is answering that prayer. Right, he is answering it for Ruth that she will find rest in the house of a husband in the land of Israel, right, in the covenant people of God. Um, and it's far better than Naomi ever could have imagined. And then we come to Ruth chapter 3, which is probably the most interesting set of verses in, in the book. Uh, so we'll read verses 1 through 5, and you can tell me if you think this was a, a wise plan, a uh, honorable plan. Or not. So chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you? 
that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young woman you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. And put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Mm-hmm. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. John Wolfenden has told me that he used to have discussions with people that would, in terms of dating, you know, say to him that they only wanted their daughters or sons to date biblically and it had to be, you know, exactly what the Bible tells us to do. So he always brought up this example to them. <laughs> and asked, asked if they were going to do the Ruth method. Um, but is this a, a, a God-honoring idea? Is it a, a faithful plan? Mm-hmm. You know, so it's whatever you decide, but he's an honorable man. So. Yeah. Yeah. It has to be because we know the end result. Well, we know what God did with it. <laughs> Many of my sinful intentions God uses for good. Um, she may have been getting anxious about the situation because at the end of chapter 2 we find that after the initial visit and the excitement of meeting Boaz uh, Ruth gleans until the end of the barley and the wheat harvests so there's, there's been a significant amount of time passed there's been no real movement relationship wise and Boaz is a kind godly man who has cared for Ruth and Naomi but nothing has gone beyond that so maybe Naomi is feeling like she needs to make something happen well, it's funny because the last line of verse, chapter 2, it says, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So, she didn't... Yeah. Out, you know. Yeah, she wasn't <coughs> finding anyone. There wasn't really any prospects. <coughs> Certainly, there is, there is cultural things going on here. Um, the most interesting thing I read in regards to studying this was that the language in the text is ambiguous enough where it could go one way or the other. Um, where it may be possible that Naomi was saying, let's just give this a go and we'll see what happens. Um, and she may have not been opposed to something untoward happening. Um, at the very least, the language is not clear one way or the other in how it's stated and how she says this to Ruth. Um, there's no guarantee that she was hoping that you know, they would get together that night and have to marry. Um, but it's not clear enough that she was not thinking that. Um, so at the very least, it's, a, it's an interesting situation. And I think what is most helpful is to see what Ruth does and what Ruth says. Um, because we also see in the book of Ruth, Ruth is a woman of godly character. Right? She is somebody who has come back to Israel. She is faithful to her mother-in-law. Um, she is working hard for her, caring for her. Um, and she has left all of her family to be where God's people are. And that continues throughout the book, and we'll see that even in this instance with, with Ruth going to Boaz at night. Because her intentions are clear right from the start. Right? She is not thinking anything sinful or um, deceptive or enticing about this night. 
starting in verse 6, it says, She went down to the threshing floor and did, just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of a heap of grain. And she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And at midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And now listen, listen to Ruth's answer, because she gives incredible clarity to what she intends. And she answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings, or spread your garment over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And so this, this request is a request of caring, of redeeming me, of, of essentially an, an audacious request that would lead to marriage, because she knows that he is one of the people that can do this. Right? And he is a good man, a godly man. She is not seeking to, to entice him into anything. Right? She is simply asking for him to fulfill a, a godly command. But it's a bold move. It's a very bold move. He's asking, she's asking Boaz to act and to do something that would cost him. But it would be for her good. Right? It would be for her rescue. This is going to cost Boaz because, first off, he's going to be known in Israel as somebody who married a Moabite. And she's known as a godly woman, but she is still a foreigner. He's also going to have to financially support Ruth and Naomi. Right? And then if they have a child, the property that belongs to Naomi and Elimelech is going to go to that child. Right? So he's not, he's not getting significant financial gain. Um, we'll see at the end that the other redeemer has a problem with that. Right? He's not willing to suffer that financial loss. But Boaz is a godly man. And so we see here his response. In verse 10, he says, May, the Lord, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So Boaz sees another kindness in Ruth. He sees another good quality. And I think he is noting Ruth's kindness to Naomi. Right, this is not a kindness to him, but it's a kindness to Naomi. Right? Ruth is taking a great risk upon herself to go and to do this and to ask this question um, in order to care for Naomi, right? in order to help take care of the family. And so she is being, once again, a servant, somebody who is loving her mother-in-law. Um, and she goes to a man of character to do this. Right? She doesn't go to somebody who would be more attractive or maybe richer, although certainly Boaz had, had money, um, but still, she goes to a man of character. And so once again, her, her service, her humble devotion is on display. Um, and Boaz sees that. And we see these two people that are, are full of godly character, right, promising to, to help each other, especially Boaz now. Um, interestingly, in the Hebrew Bible, the book that comes before Ruth is Proverbs. Uh, and it ends in Proverbs 31. And you find this interesting parallel, because um, we'll come to what the men of the gate or no, sorry, it's right here at the, the end of the section I just read. Um, everyone knows 
All my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Right? In Proverbs 31, you find a worthy woman being the one who is praised at the city gate. Um, so we see Ruth, uh, amazingly, right? a Moabite, not even somebody who was born in the covenant people. Right? Ruth being one of these people that's being connected to the woman of Proverbs 31. But again, we have a complication. And it's this, this other redeemer that is closer. So imagine getting the courage to do what Ruth did and you know, waiting until Boaz wakes up. I, I don't know how many hours she laid there, but just the nervousness and the, the fear and the possibility of what could happen. And he finally stirs and they have this conversation. He says, I will do it. And the excitement of that, but there's somebody else. And just such a, a moment of, of letdown emotionally and, and such a difficult moment. But at the same time, it's a moment to do what Ruth has been doing up to this point. Right? She needs to continue to trust the God who has brought her here and has done amazing things in her life. Right? Up to this point, God has been faithful. Uh, and this is a great reminder for us. If God has been faithful up to this point, where we ought not trust him to stop being faithful for the future. His faithfulness does not waver. So we come to the end of chapter 3, and Boaz again loads her up with food to take back. It's quite possible that six measures of barley was 80 pounds that she lugged back into the city. Um, So I found that to be a little interesting tidbit. Uh, (laughs) it 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 is impressive. Um, probably be Leah Thomas there you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there it is. Oh my goodness. <laughs> You're not wrong. Um, but he sends her back, and this is the theme of Boaz, right? He sends her back with abundant provision, with abundant grace um, and kindness. And you you get the the reminder also that. As Boaz does these these little things with food, that Naomi's emptiness right is starting to be refilled by the Lord, right? Her her bitterness is being taken away. Um, I, I I think I could make the argument that the Book of Ruth is possibly more about Naomi than it is about Ruth. Um, certainly, it's about ultimately what God is doing. We'll come to that at the end. Um, but you see Naomi's progression through this book as being something that's highlighted. And this is another moment where Boaz sends Ruth back with abundant provision and Naomi is, is blessed by that. And then she says that Boaz will settle the matter today. He's a reliable and trustworthy man. Um, if you want to debate after, so he sends her with six measures of barley. Okay? And so if you're uh, thinking of numbers in the Bible, that is as one short of a completeness. Um, but Boaz will, by the end of the story, give, give Ruth a, a seventh seed, as it were, right, to complete the emptiness that was lacking. So, and so we come to the end of Ruth chapter 4, and this is Boaz settling the matter promptly. And so he goes right to the gate of the city, he goes down and gathers around the elders. This is how business would have been transacted. And then he waits for this this other redeemer to come along to the place of business. 
So we'll start in chapter 4, verse 3. And he said, Boaz said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. So Boaz leaves off a fairly significant detail here. He presents this as a, as a very positive thing to this, this other redeemer. Um, I think we see some shrewdness here from Boaz, some wisdom in how he's dealing with this man, and he knows who the man is and what the man likes and what the man wants. Um, this man is a selfish man. He likes his money. He likes his inheritance. And so Boaz just draws him in just like that. And then we have the, the bait and switch, as it were. He then tells the man after the man commits to it, that there's going to be an additional something that comes with this inheritance and this money. (laughs) The day you also buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Man. He's selfish, right? He's covetous. But he's honest about it. He's, he's <laughs> honest. <laughs> Such a positive attribute. And why does that take Jesus' discussion with the young rich man? And and here's 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 the promise of rejection. Yes. <laughs> but I don't want to give away my goods. Yeah. You take you you take yourself, yeah. giving it to someone else. In one sense, he also symbolizes Israel's whole frame frame of mind. Yeah. You take, oh Gentiles, mm-hmm. the Redeemer. We don't want him to yeah. be like what we like yeah. in our own self-righteousness. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Right. Right? Whoever would lose his life for my sake will find it. Right? This is what we're seeing play out in this man. And it's not even that Ruth is, is unattractive, like she is known as a quality woman of character, a faithful, godly woman. But that man, this, this second redeemer, does not love those things. Right? He does not love somebody who is faithful to the Lord because he is not faithful to the Lord. Right? He does not love the things of God. And so he will not do the right thing that he would have been commanded to do by the Old Testament, right, to perpetuate the name of a relative because the husband died and there was no children. And so, interestingly, he is trying to to protect his future, keep his inheritance, you know, make sure that his family prospers. But who is this man? Do we know anything about him? Do we know his name? What do we know about Boaz? What, what do we know about him in terms of perpetuating his name? <coughs> his family line leads to Christ. He's the great grandfather of David, the father of Jesus. Right? Like we have this man. Ian Duguid in his commentary says, by trying to protect his future, 
Mr. So-and-so would remain forever nameless. Right? He's written out, he's not even mentioned here by name, very significantly because he's trying to preserve himself and his name. Boaz is not. Right? Boaz is trying to honor the Lord and do that which is right. And Boaz's name is written forever in the history books as one who honored God, and we have no idea who this man was. You ever think about the significance of God giving us new names in heaven? Mm. And the significance of that in terms of God remembering us with a new name forever mm. compared to the names that he forgets yeah. from the world? Yeah. I haven't thought about that, but that's good. Yeah. So Boaz fulfills his, his God-honoring duty and he continues to care for Ruth and Naomi. Um, he and this Redeemer finish the transaction. Uh, if you go back to Deuteronomy, uh, th- that's where this transaction... Let's see if I have a note here. I think it's Deuteronomy and Leviticus. These two are the two places where this transaction is detailed. Um, yeah, Deuteronomy 25 and Leviticus 25 talk about how Israel should deal with these situations. Um, and it seems at this point in, in history the what they were supposed to do has shifted a little bit and becomes more of an agreeable transaction. Um, I'm not certain because neither of these men are brothers of Elimelech, um, but it does sound like they have tamed down the command in Deuteronomy to make it a little more palatable um, because the wife was supposed to come and spit in the face of the man who denied redemption and then take his sandal. Um, and he was supposed to be known as the one who has had his sandal taken, I think is what the, the verse says. Um, so you see some shades of that here in their agreement, but you don't see the full disgrace of the agreement. So I do wonder if Israel has, in disobedience, softened this um, to make it easier because people are selfish and they love their money. Um, it's entirely possible. <coughs> And then there's a blessing from the elders onto Boaz and Ruth. And also in that blessing, uh, because they come from the line of Judah, right, this is the tribe of Judah, uh, the blessing includes the name Tamar, which is another just great reminder of what God does with, with his people and how he redeems and how he brings blessing out of the midst of sinners who sin. Um, and what a great encouragement for us that God is the God who works in the midst of sinners. Right? He is the God who redeems and saves and continues his sovereign work even though we sin and fail. And as we come to the end of Ruth, we're back to Naomi. And I think at this point we see a full turn from Naomi. A full turn back to the Lord. So starting in chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. It's a what a highlight of God's purpose in all of this, right? The Lord gave her conception. She was married for possibly ten years before she met Boaz, with no children. But the Lord, at this moment, in His purposes, gave her conception. And then the women said to Naomi, right? Again, this is not. The Ruth Boaz love story. There's a lot more going on here. The women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. Uh, What a phrase. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. 
For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. Obed, which means servant of God or worshiper. And I think in a clear connection to what has happened in Naomi's heart. Right, she has she has been changed from the beginning of this story to a worshiper once again God, and she is now holding regularly this little baby that will remind her forever of what God has done. And so then it finishes in what we all know, uh, the genealogy that is so famous. He was the father of Jesse and the father of David. Mm-hmm. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. The Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Ruth or Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. It's interesting. the The Davidic line had to go through Boaz, okay. so he could have married a Jewish woman who was faithful to the Lord and. This genealogy at the end of Ruth would have been the same. And Jesus' genealogy would have been unbroken. It would have continued as it should have from Judah all the way through David down to Jesus. Ruth, in terms of who she is, right, in terms of where she comes from as a family, is not essential to the line of David. right? The genealogy doesn't have to pass through her. It only has to pass through Boaz. So why does God do this? Why does he go to all of these lengths to bring this woman in? Because he works in ways we don't expect. Yeah. <laughs> and he wants to include the, the, the those who are not included. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he works in ways we don't expect and he wants to include those that are not included. Yeah. Multitude from every nation. Amen. Mm-hmm. Amen. Right. God is doing what Israel did not do, bringing in the nations. Also remember, there, there was no better people to choose from. Right? It's not like God had class A people and then class B people and decided to go with class B. Right? It's not like the Israelites deserved this and the Moabites didn't. Um, they're all sinners. But this is just, this is our God. Right? This is God reacting in this world, or acting, sorry, in this world to accomplish his purposes, right? And to do it in such a way where it is beautiful and glorious to him. Right? Where he is doing things that, that we couldn't imagine doing, we could not think are even possible, right? And he is doing them in a way that glorifies him. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And God, throughout all of history, has been doing this. And Ruth is a beautiful example. If you look at the line of Jesus, and just think about the, the different women mentioned. Right? It's Tamar, a bit of a, a sordid past. Uh, Rahab, probably the, the most sordid of them all. Ruth, we just talked about. And that's Bathsheba. Right? There is just... Sin upon sin in the line of Jesus. And we haven't even gotten to the men. <laughs> right? the, the men are, are just as problematic and screwed up. You think about Judah and Tamar. Right? You think about David 
the one who kills Bathsheba's husband. Um, it's a remarkable procession of sinners in the light of Jesus. It's interesting also that the book of Judges, as was mentioned, it also says in, that in those days there was no king. Mm. And Ruth is setting up the Davidic dynasty and kingship. Yeah. You know, such a hope that, yeah. that comes from that. That's mm-hmm. so unexpected. Yeah. It's back to verse 14 in chapter 4, right? Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. May His name be renowned in Israel. And that may be the, the theme verse for this book and realistically the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? May His name be renowned. And so we see just an incredible story of, of God's provision. Right? God's full restoration and rest that he brings to his people. The Lord's discipline and chastisement to draw his people back. The Lord's plan to bring the nations unto himself. To save, to create worshipers. We see a little Obed, his name means worshiper. We also see God's love for his people that stray. As much as Naomi strayed, the Lord was that shepherd going to get the, the one sheep right, and bringing that sheep back, just as Jesus talks about. Um, it's a beautiful story of who our God is. Right? He is a redeeming God. He is the one who brings the nations to himself. He redeems his people. He keeps his people faithful. Right? He disciplines and chastises. And most importantly, he is the one who gives us the the ultimate Boaz, right? The ultimate Redeemer who comes and sees the need and sees the the one who is lost and in need of rescue and redeems them, right? The one who was bitter now becomes a worshiper. The one who was was poor and broken now becomes full. And Boaz is one that we see exemplifying what will be ultimately fulfilled in Christ, right? Christ is the ultimate Boaz, Right, who who redeems and saves and provides and cares um, for the nations, for all the world. Um, so Ruth is a wonderful book highlighting what God has done. And then it continues right into 1 Samuel as a, a wonderful uh, prelude to the line of the Messiah that will continue through David. Right, from, from here, so you come out of Judges, and from here you're in Ruth, headed right into the beginning of the kingship in Israel. Um, and so this provides us an amazing connection that even though at the end of Judges, everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes, and then in 1 Samuel, you know, people are asking wrongly for a king, Ruth is a beautiful reminder sitting in the middle that God, in the midst of all of this, is at work accomplishing his purposes perfectly and beautifully. So that's just things that we can rejoice in because that's who our God is today. Um, so let's pray and then we'll... We'll head off. Father, thank you so much for this book, for this time, for who you are. Um, God, it is, it is amazing to, to step back and look at some of these stories that you have given us in your word um, and just to see your beauty, your wisdom, your plan, your perfection, and how you just do everything um, just wonderfully. Father, we worship you and praise you, for you are the one who is accomplishing all things, and you are the only one who deserves the worship and the praise. Help us to continue to see your work today in our church, in our lives. Um, for Father, the stories you've given us in your word are just a, 
a fraction of a percent of all the things you're doing. Um, so help us to see that, that we might worship you with great joy. Mm-hmm. Father, help us to do that with our church family today as we gather, and we thank you for, for this time. In the name of Christ, amen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks, Seth.